and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today we're talking about something that improves with age and has a great nose. Is it me? Yeah. 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 And also it's wine. Yeah. We're back in History's Pantry this week and we've assembled a holiday wine tasting for you all, along with some ancient cheese. Because what's wine without cheese? Let's get into it, shall we? Yes, let's. <laughs> so our first heading is entitled Old Gross Wine. And it is. Well, more like Old Gross Presumed Wine. True. So this is the Spire Wine Bottle, otherwise known as Römerwein, and it's a sealed vessel presumed to contain liquid wine. And it's so named because it was dug up from a Roman tomb found near Spire, Germany. It's considered the world's oldest known bottle of wine, although, again, it's presumed wine because the bottle remains unopened. The oldest for sure known wine dates back to around 6000 BCE, but it's only residue found in pottery jars in what is now the Republic of Georgia. The Spire wine bottle is now located in the Pfalz Historical Museum in Germany. And so the bottle is sealed with wax and contains uh, a real gnarly looking mixture of dark solids and sort of a milky white liquid. So the bottle is 1.5 liters. It's a magnum. It is a magnum. The next one up is, so if it's a, there's a, a one bottle. So yeah, right? that's a bottle. <laughs> Thanks. Um. <laughs> and that's, so that's 750 milliliters. So three yes. quarters of a liter. And, and then, then one and a half liters is a magnum. Three liters is a double magnum. Mm-hmm. Four and a half liters. Oh, snap. So four and a half liters is a, a Jeroboam, which is not. Jerboa, the little hoppy creature that lives in the desert. Jeroboam is actually the, what did I say? The great grandson of King David in the Bible. Of biblical fame. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. Um, And then depending on what part of France you're in, a Jeroboam is either three or four and a half liters. And I guess if you're in the part of France where a double magnum is actually a Jeroboam, a four and a half liter bottle of wine is a Rehoboam who was jeroboam's father in both biblical and math terms i am lost well six liters is an imperial also known as a methuselah i've seen (laughs) i've seen one of those before it's very big Um, i've only ever seen it as like sort of an object of curiosity in liquor stores it's like look at a big bottle um a 12 liter bottle is a balthazar who needs a 12 liter bottle well a big party um but you can't how do you even lift it to pour there are logistics involved i don't i guess if you're in a position where you can buy a 12 liter bottle of champagne you probably can pay for like party staff yeah you probably have people to pour it (laughs) that's true that's very true and a 15 liter is a why nebuchadnezzar which is Uh the equivalent to 20 standard 750 milliliter bottles gosh um i don't know why there's a random babylonian neo-babylonian in here i don't know why it started off named after biblical figures in the first place yeah well you know like you know there was king david then there was solomon which is an 18 liter so solomon after after solomon there was king double magnum you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, why isn't there one called a Noah? He's the one who planted the first vineyard, supposedly. He's the one that, that supposedly in the Ararat region, which is why there's such a big wine and like cognac production there. I've had cognac from the Mount Ararat region and it was Was delicious. this like a, a garden path to that humble brag? <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I just wanted to tell you about the cognac I had one time and it was really good. Um, no, but... So supposedly Noah was the first biblical figure to make a vineyard, you know, plant grapes, make wine, and then get drunk. Abraham also was supposed to have herded camels. Hmm. But, well, that isn't the case. Well, all of this is from Wine Foley. Wine Foley. (laughs) Just wine noises. Yeah, I was going to say, I love that Wine Foley work. Gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. (laughs) Glup, 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 glup. Uh, (laughs) Let's get back to the gross wine. Okay. Tell me okay. about this wine bottle. So as as we said, uh, it is a 1.5 liter oh, no. Magnum bottle. Yes. It has, it's a glass bottle and mm-hmm. it has uh, handles shaped like dolphins. And it was buried in the tomb of a Roman nobleman and his wife. 
and researchers estimate that it dates to around 325 CE. And the tomb was originally excavated in 1867, and other wine bottles were found in there, but they had long since shattered. The wine inside the spire bottle was likely made from local grapes planted during Roman rule. And then um, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but um, Roman wine was quite different from what we drink today at the dinner table. It was often mixed with a number of herbs and sometimes olive oil, sometimes honey, things like that. The residue inside the bottle is, is no longer what you could actually call wine. So instead, it's this solid, dark goop and a milky liquid. But even the survival of that residue is just unprecedented. And it has to do with the fact that, first of all, the glass bottle was unusually well made. While the Romans did have glass technology, they didn't uh, make the kind of tempered glass that we have today. And so wine bottles and, and any glass vessels were very, very fragile. And also... The bottle was sealed with wax. That wax seal has remained intact. And a thick layer of olive oil was poured over the wine and preserved the contents from totally evaporating. In fact, more oil than wine was poured into the bottle. So there's this dense, solid layer that you can see through the glass. We will, we will put up a picture. It's pretty gnarly looking. And more than that, microbiologically, the liquid inside the bottle is actually probably safe to drink. But you wouldn't want to. I would. And that's gross. <laughs> so um amber tell us more about roman wine yeah so we learn a lot of what we know about roman viticulture the mm. uh the, the term for uh the growing grape growing yeah. well you don't you grow the grapes and then you make the wine so yeah, so you grow the wine you you grow that wine Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so the most comprehensive account we have about what happened in roman viticulture is by columella he wrote De Re Rustica, which means on country matters. It's 11 volumes of hexameter verse. That's disgusting. That's um, so much so, verse. So he, he wrote on that. On farming. Farm, farm verse. Um, he wrote that around um, 65 CE. And in it, he discusses, because, you know, it is 11 volumes. So he probably discusses all aspects of the, the villa system and wine production. And so the, the villa being like Roman country houses are, mm -hmm. are known as villas. It's a country um, estate. Yeah. It's like an economic entity also. Mm -hmm. Colimella says that the best wine is that quote, which has, which has given pleasure by its own natural quality, end quote. Like the wine itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so it's just... It's just good wine. The best wine is just good wine. Good, rustic wine. It's not judged up. It's just simple, straight wine. And so wine was um, transported and stored in uh, a style of, of ceramic called an amphora, which is, is something that is sort of conical at the bottom and it's got little handles. And you would have to keep it in, a, in something kind of like how you would keep test tubes because they can't stand up on their own. They either lay on their side or they have to be like put in some kind of frame. Um, mm -hmm. And pottery, unless it is glazed, is porous. So the yeah. reason why you use terracotta pots that they're always said to be the best for plants and houseplants and things is because it's porous. So it can sweat. So it can absorb water and release water. And, and that also is used for keeping things cool mm -hmm. because it can, it can sweat. That's why like um, in very arid climates, you like you find, do you have that so that the water stays cool if it's drinking water? Now, the problem is that if you want to keep water inside something or something or wine. inside something, yeah, you don't want it to leave. So you would you would line it with something. You'd sort of seal the inside of it. And uh, Romans would use pitch or bitumen, like tar. Um, and so sometimes the wine ends up tasting like it's got tar in it, which is what they would refer to as a resinous taste. Which isn't yummy. Well, it's still a, a preferred type of wine in Greece, isn't it? Isn't that what retsina is? Don't know. Okay, so there's a Greek well, wine so, called, called retsina, and I think it has natural pine tree resin in it, and it well, like, creates that taste. Uh, so that would be something that is, you opt into it. So you have that kind of piney flavor. And I can rate right. that. Like, so, but this is sort of like, it's got tar in it, so it tastes oh, like tar. Not as good. So I think okay. they're being kind when they say resinous. Okay. Um, and and so when you've got this sort of pitchy taste in wine, there are a lot of people who had ideas about how to make it taste better because like 
some people consume, don't like tar. Yeah, because you consume wine not only as like an alcoholic beverage, but you consume wine because you can't because you might be in a place where the water isn't potable. Potable. Uh, oh yeah, potable. Yeah, yeah, it's potable. Okay, so plenty of the elder who's always got an idea. Um, recommend when no one wanted his advice. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, gosh. Yeah, he really is like the patron saint of like self-publishing. Like he just like, I got these books. And everyone's like, thank you, sir. Um, <laughs> he recommended adding, quote, seawater to enliven the smoothness. What does that even mean? I don't know. It's plenty of the elder. I don't know. Okay. Um, right. So it's just, you know, you got to smooth it out. You put some seawater in it. Uh, maybe a little bit of salt. would, ca- Yeah, because like salt helps with bitterness. So maybe that's something that sure. would make sense. So it's like a little salty. Um, Cato liked to drink his wine flavored with a drop of pig's blood and a pinch of marble dust. I think that's made up. That's absurd. <laughs> um, the archaeologist cum winemaker, what is his Her- name? Hervé. 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 Hervé Dorad told yeah, sure. Bloomberg News, quote, <laughs> The soldiers didn't care if it turned to vinegar. It gave them energy. Yeah, it's like your kombucha, what? you know? Is, is he is he speak is he speaking as an archaeologist or as a winemaker? I don't know what hat he um, was wearing for that one. Okay. <laughs> and um our boy Plenty the Elder also wrote that it was common to find drowned mice in wine-filled storage vessels. When this occurred, he suggested removing the marinated mouse and roasting it. Thanks, Pliny. Massilitanum was a heavy wine. A lot of these were heavy wines. Um, that yeah, Galen, the, I think they would yeah. be a bit more alcoholic than our usual yeah. so, wines that we drink today. So usually a wine is sits around 11, 12 percent. Yeah. And I think it can exceed 20. Right. I think in like standard um, whatevers. Yeah, standard whatevers. Um, but yeah, these are heavy. So they're heavy and they also have precipitate in them. Yeah, like sediment and... and- yeah, there's le- they're it's less a, it's a grainy wine. So yeah, so this is a heavy wine that Galen, um, Galen is um, a physician. We've talked about him before, yep. but he's he's the one that's got a lot of views on gynecology. Yeah, um, about the uterus. He wrote he wrote the he literally wrote the book on gynecology. Yeah, um, and I think his views on wine are probably right up there with his views on uteruses. His his views on wine might wine might be better better informed but let's see how this goes <laughs> um so galen thought that masculinitanum was um delightful and good for health um uh, but marshall thought it was so bad it should only be given to homeless people to poison them so there's the dichotomy for you and mm. marshall not some not just some dude named marshall it's it's spelled m-a-r-t-i-a-l and he was a he was a roman poet right i don't know i think marshall was a poet okay Let's uh, put some Google music in there where I figured that out. Yeah, he's a poet. Cool. So other wines, less questionably poisonous, would be served at parties and they might be sprinkled with euphrosinum, uh, the plant of cheers, um, or here, <laughs> like cheers, like, oh, cheers, or like, <sighs> or just like good spirits. Why not all three? Oh, okay. Wine, not yeah. indeed. <laughs> or it'd be sprinkled with Hiera Botane, which is the sacred plant, to uh, keep that conversation going and keep the spirits high. And there's another type of, there's a, a beverage um, yeah. called called Mulsum, which is honey blended with high alcohol wine, which, ew. Um, and so it's sort of like a like a syrupy drink. So that would be something where they would mix honey in and so it's scissor (laughs) ew (laughs) okay um tell us about tell us about what happened at the symposium anna for the ancient greeks a party wasn't good unless the wine flowed freely and the greeks didn't just they didn't just drink their wine they they also threw it this game of wine slinging known as kotabos 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 uh, it yeah. had a specific target, and both pride and prizes were on the line. So Kotobos had two iterations. There was the preferred way to play, which you actually often see on pieces of, of Greek pottery. Uh, so it involves a pole, 
and players would balance a small bronze disc called a plastinks. Plastinks, that's a weird word. Uh, so the, the plastinks would go on top of the pole, and the goal was to, once you had sort of finished your wine to the last dregs, you would flick it, flick the dregs of your wine at the plastinks so that it would fall, and then attached about two-thirds down the pole, there's something called a manes, which is a metal plate or domed pan. So you want this small bronze disc to fall onto the metal plate and make a big crashing sound. So the competitors would recline on their couches, and each took turns launching their wine from their kylix, which was a shallow circular vessel with a little looped handle on each side. So you'd be lounging, drinking wine, and then when you got to the bottom, you'd fling what was left and try to make the, the disc make a big crashy noise. Um, a less common version of the game featured players aiming at a number of small bowls, which floated in water within a larger basin, so kind of like beer pong. So in this case, the object of the game was to sink as many of the little bowls as possible with the same flick of the wrist and, and sort of arcing the wine dregs out and into the little pots. But this one didn't make a big crashy bang noise. So it's the less preferred but the more civilized way to play. Ah, so one could say that drinking games have always been a part of Greek life. Ugh. ugh. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. Thanks. Um, yeah, let's talk about other wines. Wines and wines. There were quotes around that second one. Didn't you hear it? I think we've made this clear in the past, but just restating it again. Um, just stating it again. There, that way I'm not redundant. <laughs> oh, that wasn't a joke. I was just redundant the first time. <laughs> no, I know. I'm laughing at you being like so fastidious and correcting yourself, but I had a mouthful of tea. So I was trying oh, okay. to spit at my microphone. Um, we actively try to move beyond the parts of the world that we know best, uh, just me and Anna. So that would be Europe and Western Asia. Um, and so, but unfortunately, so fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know, uh, we have <laughs> <laughs> something of an excuse for falling into that old trap so far this week, because we've talked about the classical world and Western Asia. Um, yeah. But... That has something to do with the fact that ancient wine is heavily dependent on ancient grapes. And so the common well, yeah, but that's not an excuse. So I I went further. Um, because it's the least I can do. The common grapevine, Vitus vinifera, so Vitus the wine bearing, uh, wine bearing grapes. Um, it's indigenous to Mediterranean coastal regions, Southern Europe, and Southwestern Asia. So sure, it makes sense that we'd find wine there good and early in human history, because they're around there. Um, there are several species within the the, vitus, the Vetus genus that are native to North America, but not Vetus vinifera. And so two fun things that I learned about that today, because I was reading A History of Wine in America, Mm -hmm. um, which is, as you may guess, comprehensive. Vitus vinifera has the right characteristics in terms of um, the amount of sugar in the grape versus the acidity, because you have to have both to have it ferment at all. Yeah. Otherwise, you just have like moldy juice. Ah. So Concord grapes, the really dark ones that like pop out of the skin. Yeah, and those are uh, native to North America. Yeah, they're native to North America, and they're they're actually Vitus labrusca, not Vitus vinifera. And I always thought that a grape is a grape is a grape. Like you know how like you had grape expectations. Oh, gross! Oh. So like Yorkies and Great Danes are both dogs. Like I thought that like Concord grapes and like Muscat grapes are just grapes. Guess not. But no, totally not the case. And so the grapes that my papaw grew when I was growing up, they aren't good winemaking grapes uh, because they have like too much sugar, not enough acid, and they just get kind of bleh. But they make excellent jam. And grape um, juice. And grape juice, yeah. And so um, curious that there would be a place called Wineland here in North America. So at the turn of the second millennium CE... <laughs> This, this is great. We have uh, the beginning of the noble tradition of white people showing up places and calling them by names that are inaccurate. Um, <laughs> when that was that happened with Leif Erikson, Leif Erikson and Vinland. Um, so he showed up and he's like, oh, Vinland. Great. Did you know that there's a statue to him in Boston? Like he didn't land in Boston. Why? 
Why? There's just like a, a Leif Erikson like appreciation <laughs> society, and they erected a statue to him. It's a beautiful statue. It's really cool. He's like They're standing like, on, he's like standing on the prow of a ship, and there's runes on it. But it's just like hey, this guy was cool. <laughs> okay, cool. There's no reason for him to be in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably feeling the same way. He's like, why am I here? Um, <laughs> but there are some there's some theories about how Venland became Venland among the Norse. Oh yeah, and it seems that. Those vines that he saw in Vinland, which is probably around the northern coast of Newfoundland, which is like so far north of where grapes can grow. So there definitely wouldn't have been grapes of any kind, but it was probably wild cranberry plants. Um, And another guess is that uh, the Vikings named the land for for meadow grass and meadow grass is archaically called Vin or Vinber, which would have mis- been misinterpreted by later tellers of the saga who were like, okay. oh, dull grapes. Um, huh. Okay. A- a- yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. So we, we don't have wine. Like uh, grape like, wine. We don't have grape. Yeah. We don't have grape wine. I couldn't find any examples of grape wine from pre-contact North America or, but like tons of people eat grapes. Like they eat grapes. They cultivate grapes. They do stuff with grapes. It's great. Grapes are great. Uh, but not wine because it would be gross like it wouldn't work so how do you find wine of of any kind so back in 1996 university of pennsylvania archaeologist patrick mcgovern and his team were able to confirm the presence of calcium salt from tartaric acid on the interior of a potsherd that was excavated from haji Firuz tepe which is in iran in the zagros mountains um, so tartaric acid occurs naturally in large amounts only in grapes. So there must have been grapes in it. And if there were grapes in a pot, probably was wine. Yeah. And they probably didn't sense. just make it. They probably consumed it. So there we've <laughs> got uh, we got confirmed wine at least 7,000 years ago. Uh, so that was like, you know, 20 some 20 years ago, 22 years ago. But mm-hmm. last year... Patrick McGovern and friends found similar residue on ceramic material in Georgia, which is what you talked about a few minutes ago. And that dates to at least 8,000 years ago. And so that is now the reigning champion for world's oldest grape wine. Okay. But if we expand the definition of wine to include other substances and fruits apart from grapes, our geographic lens becomes much wider. Well, let's expand. Yeah, let's. Um, first stop is on something that I don't enjoy, but respect, um, which is honey wine. Yeah, so, not a fan either, but yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so honey wine is a lot like grape wine. Even It even uses the same yeast as a fermentation agent as mm-hmm. grape wine, which I learned this time. It's just made with bee vomit. Um, oh. And... <laughs> So um, we discussed honey wine before, but as mead, the old Norse word for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talked about that in Thanks Viking Second Helpings. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are examples of honey wine from elsewhere in the world. Very interesting examples, some of which are 8,000 years old. Wow. Yeah. Um, And so something that you could call honey wine is, in fact, the oldest known fermented beverage in the world. And you and I talked about that in greater detail in our second Deep Cuts episode back over there on Patreon. But for those among our listeners who aren't absolute dirtbags, let me fill you in. Guess who? <laughs> guess who published this? Patrick McGovern. Patrick McGovern. <laughs> yeah, he's he's the booze guy. Like his he has a lab at UPenn that uh, specializes in like residue analysis. And so he like you just call his team. So he wouldn't necessarily have been like excavating in Georgia, excavating in Iran, excavating in China. Like he may have. I don't know where his field work has taken him. But like he's the person whose lab you call when you're like, I bet it's booze. And so you call him and he comes in and he says, you got booze. Um, and so these are, so what he tested this time were early Neolithic jars, um, from, uh, what did we say that? Jahu? Yeah. Jahu. Okay. So, <laughs> so early Neolithic jars from, um, near the settlement of Jahu, which is in the Henan province of China. Um, and they're dated to around 6,000 to 5,500 BCE. 
Um, and analyses by uh, McGovern and company showed that those jars contain a mixed fermented beverage of rice, honey, and fruit. Specifically, they think it was hawthorn fruit or grape. And some of our grown-up listeners might be familiar with this, this flavor profile because it was recreated by Dogfish Head Brewery with the help of Patrick McGovern. Um, in, uh, they first released this in 2006 and occasionally since. It's the Chateau Giahu. and But they, they use grape. I know that they use like grape juice in their, in yeah. their recipe. Yeah, so Patrick McGovern has worked a lot with Dogfish Head Brewing Company to... Yeah. reproduce a lot of uh, beers. So they're sort of creatively riffing on, because we don't really know even just if we have the residue, it's still sort of unclear what the fermentation and brewing process was exactly like. Yeah, But they know sort of what the ingredients were. And so they have used a number of um, sort of ancient recipes, quote unquote, to, to create some beverages. So uh, Check them out. They're kind of interesting to drink. I can't say yeah, that I've and- truly enjoyed any of them, <laughs> but I've, well, I've enjoyed the the novelty. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, honey wine isn't just of interest to Viking Europe and Neolithic China, as you might guess if they are, if it's been in two very different places at very different times. Um, right. Over, um, over in the Horn of Africa, in what is today Ethiopian Eritrea, uh, folks have for a very long time enjoyed Tej which is an often homemade honey wine that's made from honey, water, and extract from the gesho plant. And that plant is uh, Romnus prenoides, prenoides, yeah, Romnus yeah. prenoides um, which functions like hops in the so beverage. It gives it a little bit of a bitter zing. Yeah. And um, if you've gone to like an Ethiopian or Eritrean restaurant, like they uh, yeah, many I've had of honey them wine. have. Yeah. I actually kind of liked it. it. It's commercially made now. So there are like, dedicated like breweries for it or vintners i don't know um and so that's what you would get like if you're in a restaurant but people also make it at home um and i found a very cool article that was published in the journal of food technology in africa that looks at chemical and nutritional properties of tej and and so you could you can read that it's really cool they 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 do sampling which nice (laughs) <laughs> they do. A, they have a, a very large sample, um, and so the authors also uh, point out that in Africa, fermented alcoholic beverages are consumed in different occasions, such as marriage, naming, and rainmaking ceremonies, at festivals and social gatherings, at burial ceremonies, and settling disputes. Um, but they're also used. You can mix um, barks or stems of certain plants in and use them as um, like a medicinal remedy. And they're also good for alleviating fever. But something that like if we're looking at, if we're taking more like the Dr. Goldfield, like nutritional angle of things, <laughs> um, alcohol, like alcohol itself in traditional beverages, it, it's, it's a good source of calories. So if you have a calorie deficient diet and you just need some calories, like alcohol can provide them. They aren't mm-hmm. the best calories, but also like what honey wine does, what Tej does is it not only provides calories, but it brings, um, it can provide B vitamins, um, because of the residues of the substrates and then the fermenting yeast and other microorganisms offer other nutritional benefits. So it's not mm-hmm. just drinking for drinking sake or like drinking for ritual sake. It's, it's drinking something that has a dietary benefit to people. The other kind of wine that I'm going to talk about today, but there you can make wine from lots of different things. And some of them we're going to save for future episodes because we'd run out of time. But I wanted to talk about rice wine because it can also technically claim its earliest instance in the Jahu beverage that we talked about because that substance is a, a fermented mix of honey and rice. Uh, so we got our honey wine and our rice wine. And um, rice wine is traditionally produced and consumed like all throughout South and East Asia and into Oceania. Um, I want to focus on a handful of examples from China. And so this one is not quite as old, but just as cool. And it's the phenomenon of liquid rice wine being excavated from burial contexts in China. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so as of earlier this year, um, researchers from the Shanxi Provincial Institute of Archaeology um, excavated a bronze vessel dating 
the data to the is it chin the q it, yeah yeah okay okay chin. excavated a bronze vessel dating to the chin dynasty which contained about 10 ounces of rice liquor and that's not necessarily an exception um and also that's really cool because it's not like what's what's in that bronze those those bronze vessels it isn't the same thing as in the spire vessel where there's this like sort of gloopy mess under a layer of of olive oil it's just straight up liquid wow that's yeah huh so it seems that they they've got this bronze vessel they shook it and we're like oh. <laughs> and just like cracked it open um and in the the article for the the 2018 findings they have it just like in a picture <laughs> they're like we poured it out because you know for study like to to study and everything yeah, but it's I just there and you're like that samples. is liquid I, yeah i think they I think they did it. I think, but there's a video. You can watch the video. Even weirder than finding, well, to, weirder to me than finding 10 ounces of rice liquor in a bronze vessel um, that's, that, that is about 2,200 years old. So, you know, mm-hmm. 2,000 years of just hanging out in the ground. Um, yeah. this, has, um, this has happened before in China. In 2012, Chinese state media reported that while excavating a nobleman's tomb in the northwest Shanxi province, which is um, the same province where this where this year's find was, um, archaeologists found a sealed bronze wine vessel. Um, And (laughs) I love this. Um, As of 2012, the the news story said when they shook it, they heard a liquid, but they have yet to identify it. So they got as far as. Yeah. So they definitely took the me approach of excavation to be like. Shake, 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 shake. Huh. It's like that's because obviously if you get something that's whole, shake it. What's in there? You don't yeah. know. And then so that was in 2012. Going back even earlier in 2003, five liters were excav- of, of rice wine was excavated um, at a site that's, near Xi'an. That's almost a that's almost a Methuselah. Wait, wait how much is that? I think six that's, liters was a Methuselah. That is more that's more than a, a jeroboam jeroboam and, it's, a, and a half and no, two it's thirds a, it's a, no 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 wait hold on no there's a word for that too so it's it's like roman numerals okay it's a jeroboam one jeroboam one demi and one piccolo that's how much there was <laughs> you you made that up i can say Nuh-uh. it's one it's one hamster and two cabbages no, a, a piccolo is a single serving of champagne and is that Half what it's called a, a champagne standard. flute? Oh my god! <laughs> it's also called a split. So maybe that's Ugh. if you're in Croatia. Um, and then uh-huh. half of a standard wine bottle is a demi. So wouldn't it be a Jeroboam? And then yeah, so it would be a Jeroboam, a demi, and a piccolo, and a piccolo, and yeah. a partridge in a pear tree. We don't want that to overshadow, like. The no, that's an incredible how much finding yeah. that much. Um, but also take note that when I'm talking about rice wine, I'm not talking about sake. No, this sake is, is rice beer, technically. Well, technically, sake is sake. This is this is from from my from my lips to your ears, Wikipedia. Sake is not rice wine. Sake is made from rice, yes, but in production terms, it's actually closer to beer than wine. Why? Because by definition, Wine is an alcohol that's fermented from the sugars in a fruit. So, you know, Why, rice, rice isn't fruit. Rice not no fruit. <laughs> Correct. So, <laughs> so sake does uses a two-step fermentation process. Uh-huh. And so so the starch, rice starch is converted to sugar and then that sugar is converted to alcohol by a yeast. So it's so it's closer to beer because there's a two-step process, but it's actually totally unlike anything else. So sake is sake, and nothing else is sake. Mm. I learned this from an extremely spicy article on Eater.com that sake isn't a rice wine, and four other myths dispelled. Like they're up on their sake high horses, and I love it. Cool. Yeah. So let's uh, top ourselves off of this section. <laughs> Um, (laughs) uh yeah that was the noise of a wine glass filling did i say wine glass i did let's talk about wine glasses is this more of our wine foley (laughs) (laughs) wine foley.com 
Uh, no, that was me getting on my Segway and then just smashing into a wall. <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about wine glasses. I swear to God, we're not drinking any wine during this recording. Okay. And this is a great article from Gastro Obscura, which is the sort of food-centric offshoot of Atlas Obscura. According to a recent study, drinking, and especially wine drinking, is actually on the rise. And the way that a wine glass's size has grown over time might have something to do with it. In 1700, the average British wine glass held 66 milliliters of liquid. The wine glasses of 2017, on the other hand, hold a hefty 449 milliliters. Which is... It's a piccolo and a demi. It's a chihuahua and, and a, demi. a mango and three bananas. So wine drinking in Britain has historically been a wealthy pursuit, uh, says the director of the Cambridge Behavior and Health Research Unit and the author of the study that this article is about. Her name is Teresa Marteau. The Romans planted vineyards during their rule, but overall the climate proved too cold for the domestic wine industry to flourish in Britain. And so Marteau writes that until the late 20th century, everyone else preferred beer and spirits. But the British began drinking wine en masse in the 1960s when it became trendy and easily available in supermarkets. So Marteau and her team wanted to study how wine consumption has changed over time, and so they measured 300 years' worth of wine glasses. They gathered data on a total of 411 glasses from museum collections, glassware manufacturers, and eBay. By graphing the volume of a wine glass's bowl to the date it was made, Marteau noticed that wine glass size grew significantly over the centuries. And then part of that shift, I thought this was really interesting, but part of the shift may have been due to a 1746 tax on glassware. So glasses from the mid-18th century are so small because it costs more. I think that may have corresponded with um, a window tax. I think there was just generally a tax on glass. Anyway, at one point there was a, a window tax in Britain. And so often that's why you see houses with just very, very small windows. Anyway, that's more from Anna's book of half-remembered vague facts. Great. Uh, Good. <laughs> <laughs> we need more of those in the world. <laughs> it's a coffee table book. Vague facts. Okay. So uh, that glassware tax, which is a real thing, 1746, was repealed about a century later coincidentally, during the Industrial Revolution. So people were suddenly, or not people, companies, uh, manufacturers were able to make more and bigger glasses much more easily. So the size of wine glasses kept steadily growing until the 1990s. And then as glasses began growing very big, very fast, glass size reached about 300 milliliters by the year 2000. So Marteau attributes this to a few factors. First, wine appreciation flourished in the 90s. Ugh. Not that I'm against wine appreciation, but I'm against wine snobbery. So larger glasses let wine breathe, and then uh, wide-mouthed glasses let you do that old swirl and sniff. The American glassware market's demand for ever-larger glasses also found fans in Britain, and the larger glasses might have influenced how much wine gets drunk as well. So these days, the average British pour of wine, so what you get when you ask for wine in a restaurant or a bar, is 250 milliliters, larger than the mean capacity of wine glasses available in the 1980s. So the average amount of wine that a glass could hold in the 80s, that it's more than that. So past research has shown that on average, large tableware means that people consume more as a consequence. It's not surprising. Duh. Large wine, yeah, large wine glasses also might have an economic incentive as well. In an experiment, researchers found that serving wine in larger glasses at bars could increase sales by almost 10%. For regulators keeping a worried eye on increased drinking, Marteau suggests encouraging the use of smaller glasses. We're going to bring out the cheese plate, but before we do that, we want to put in a quick plug for our $25 episode topic takeover. Ah, so there is a... Uh... Some cheddar on this cheese plate? <laughs> Ugh. You're just jealous. <laughs> yes, your joke was very good. Ah! I have so many more. But <laughs> I'll spare you, audience, in favor of just saying that you can choose a topic of your very own for the Dirt Podcast for just a $25 single-time donation. All you have to do is head over to thedirtpod.com and on the news page in on our website there are handy dandy directions for how to do that donation and you 
can have your very own episode dedicated to a friend or loved one, or you can just have one all for yourself based on a topic of your choice that Amber and I will research and talk about as long as it's not terrible. And as long as it's not already taken That's by true. the two that we have on the dock, one of which may or may not be about poop. <laughs> it is. Okay. <laughs> so Amber, I want yeah. some cheese with my wine. Okay. August 2018. What is this? <laughs> the date's important. August 2018. Dun, dun. Yeah. Like the law in August order, like, 2018. Dun, dun. Egy- Egypt. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I want to go to Egypt. <laughs> See them pyramids. All right. A few months ago, in August 2018, <laughs> dun, dun. it was reported that Egyptian archaeologists had identified what is, quote, probably the most ancient archaeological solid residue of cheese ever found to date, Ick. which sounds like a lot of qualifiers in a sentence. <laughs> probably, maybe. the ar- Like there's like the an ancient, ancient, but not archaeological. There's an ancient archaeological, but not solid. There's an ancient archaeological solid, but not residue. Or there's all of those, but it's not cheese. And some of them haven't been found. So, but that cheese. (laughs) Oh, I got so excited. I punched my microphone. (laughs) That cheese um, is estimated to be about 3,200 years old. So one could call it aged. It has been in a description befitting the ricotta I tried to make last year at my parents' house. The quote, solidified whitish mass, end quote was first found a few years ago in the tomb of an ancient Egyptian mayor okay, <laughs> at the Saqqara Necropolis near Cairo, which, remember, the Saqqara Necropolis featured in this month's old news. Mm-hmm. That tomb was discovered in 1885. All right. Um, well, the, the only first for- <laughs> I know. <laughs> and so, but that cheese, that cheese didn't get found. Uh-uh. Um only for its location to be hidden by the shifting sand, according to the New York Times, by way of like Lawrence of Arabia. Goodness, it was rediscovered in 2010. We're like, oh, <laughs> here it is. There's a tomb there. And so they published a study in the journal Analytical Chemistry. That sounds like a journal I would not read. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that sounds boring <laughs> and hard. <laughs> So, well, oh my God. Of boring and hard. I gave you, I gave you the jargoniest jargon. Go ahead. Here you go. Um, our biomolecular, <laughs> our biomolecular. Stop laughing. I got it right that time. No, I know. Our, I was, the second mm, word. Mm. Our biomolecular proteano, proteomic <laughs> characterization of this archaeological sample shows that the constituting material was a dairy product obtained by mixing sheep, goat, and cow milk. We made it. Oh, God. It gets hard again. <laughs> okay. The interactions for thousands of years with the strong alkaline environment of the incorporating soil, rich in sodium bicarbonate, and the... Nope. Sodium carbonate. Under... The interactions for th- this is going to sound like <laughs> spliced together like a ransom note. <laughs> I'm trying to get into the vault, Amber. <laughs> I need you to piece together the phrase, the interactions for thousands of years with the strong alkaline environment of the incorporating soil rich in sodium carbonate. And the desertic conditions did not prevent the identification of specific peptide markers, which showed high stability under these stressing conditions. You are showing remarkably (laughs) high stability under these stressing conditions. I know. I was like, did they make it read this paragraph? Moreover, the presence of Brucella melitensis has been attested by specific peptide, providing a reasonable direct biomolecular evidence of the presence of this infection in the ramicide period for which only indirect paleopathological evidence has so far been provided. Hey! I hate this. You did so good. Drop dead so- analytical chemistry. <laughs> I thought you were going to say dropped at Anna. I was like, no. (laughs) What did that mean? Okay. So (laughs) they did a chemical analysis of the cheese lump. Yeah, of course they did. They put it in analytical chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about peptide fingerprinting a little bit in our things made of people episode. And so Mm -hmm. they used it here on proteins from the dairy material, not collagen protein, but different sorts of protein to find out whose milk was involved. And so those... (laughs) Those, whose milk is it? The worst game show. 
So those peptides <laughs> were preserved despite soil and environmental conditions that weren't ideal. Yeah, all and that then, sodium carbonate. Mm-hmm. And moreover, they found evidence of the bacterial strain that causes brucellosis. And that's something we mentioned way back in our very first episode of Dirt After Dark. And there's so far, there's been no direct evidence that this bacterial strain uh, was affecting people as far back as the period, uh, the, the Ram- Ramesside period. So that's like the, the dynasty where the Ramseses were rulers of Egypt. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, it's it's the oldest example of brucellosis, uh, which is what, Amber? Brucellosis is a highly contagious zoonosis. What's a um, zoonosis? It's a disease that's carried by the zoos, by the animals. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, the reason why it came up in our initial Dirt After Dark is because it is technically a sexually transmitted infection among mm. ungulates. But it usually happens, like, transmission usually happens during, like, calving. So that's... Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's so technical. In humans, it's caused by ingestion of unpasteurized milk or undercooked meat from infected animals um, or close contact with their secretions. Ew. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's also known as undulant fever, Malta fever, and Mediterranean fever. So it yes. was... It, so it was endemic in Malta, and someday we're going to talk about megaliths, like megalith structures in mm-hmm. Malta, and the guy who like excavated them is also the guy who figured out, who like isolated brucellosis. What a guy. Uh, like from cows. Yeah. So he's like, <laughs> and he's got some, he's got a really awesome name that I can't remember right now. Um, and so he's just like the most famous Malton. And I... <laughs> So, yeah, fun fact. I was going to try but, and make like a malted milk joke there. and it's Ew. It's like, no. Get it? Though? No. Yeah. But get ready to regret that because. No. Um, I already do. So, so it's in humans, It's it most most commonly comes from uh, goats. And just because I guess it's it's better controlled among bovine populations is what I okay. think might be the case. Okay. Um, and so you get it. You can get it if you consume r- like raw milk, um, pasteurized milk or soft cheeses, um, a good shove. And then sometimes folks who work in laboratories, veterinarians and in slaughterhouses can get it. And apparently if you send it for testing, <laughs> it, this isn't funny at all. I don't know why I'm laughing. But if you send it for testing, like people testing it are like. It's super, super like contagious, like in those oh, conditions, no. and so people test it and then they get it, and it's just it's real. Oh, it gets no. real gross. Some of the vaccines that are used in livestock can they can get transmitted to humans if they if they poke themselves. Oh, because it so is it, it so if you miss antibodies in the yeah in the cattle so can, but not the people. You can end up no. You can like give it to yourself because it's like a live virus vaccine. Oh, so you can oh, like shoot no. yourself with brucellosis. So brucellosis induces inconstant fevers, which is why it's called undulant fever. It comes yeah. and goes in waves. It, it causes um, spontaneous abortion, so miscarriage Oof. in uh, in in the undulates. I don't know if it does that in humans. Un- um, I didn't. Yep, <laughs> undulates. If you get it as a human, mm-hmm. it produces the classic triad of undulant fevers which is joint pain, muscle pain, and sweating, often with characteristic foul, moldy smell, sometimes likened to wet hay. So that's not normal? <laughs> Ew. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Can you oh, imagine? Sounds like, awful. I smell like mold. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> oh, my body. But Shouldn't have eaten that cheese. But let's get back to Chez. Back, indeed, to cheese. So uh, that cheese that they found in in Saqqara, which, you know, was part of the sort of ceremonial feast that would go with the dead into the afterlife, was probably similar in consistency to chev, so goat cheese, but, quote, with a really, really acidy bite, end quote, according to Paul Kinstead, a professor at the University of Vermont who studies the chemistry and history of cheese and who I very much would like to meet and talk to. So (laughs) others have discovered traces of ancient cheese or yogurt, and it's really hard to distinguish the two because they just sort of preserve as a a blob. And so these traces long predate even the recent findings, says Dr. Kinstead. Quote, 
Other groups have done a lot of work with extracting lipid residues, which are fat residues, from ancient pots going as far back as 7,000 BCE, he said. End quote. And in fact, in 1942, a team of researchers reported a finding not dissimilar to that at Saqqara. In a journal article, that team from 1942 described finding a substance in ancient Egyptian jars they suspected to be cheese dating back to 3200 BCE. The samples they wrote had, quote, no smell and only a dusty taste. Why do people put it in their mouths? I I made a cake like that a couple months ago. Was it a cheesecake? Uh, No. But also, if it has no smell and only a dusty taste, one could also say perhaps it doesn't have much taste. Perhaps like, it was just dust. I dug this up. Oh, it tastes like dust. Like, no, yeah, did no. you eat sand, sirs? Um, but wait, there's a new oldest <laughs> cheese? <laughs> cheese news. September 2018. Dun, dun. Oh, man, this is like the cheese race. I know. That's why the, the cheese race of so 2018. Important. This is very exciting. Um, so, solidified whitish mass, old and busted. The new hotness is aged fatty acids. (laughs) So for several weeks, that Egyptian tomb aged cheese was about 3,200 years old. Um, It was it was thought to be the oldest cheese ever. And then up on the Adriatic, they found, according to BBC, and yes, they found cheese. Um, So an international team of researchers claims to have discovered the new world's oldest cheese which was produced 7200 years ago in what is today croatia unlike the egyptian discovery which was decidedly cheese like wow well in that it like it had a 3d shape <laughs> I just, yes this ancient cheese could be more accurately described as aged fatty acids that's what makes up a large portion of my body oh no these aren't <laughs> aged um in a study published by the journal PLOS One, uh, researchers claim that the lipid residue on pottery remnants represents the earliest example of Mediterranean cheese making. The vessels, they surmise, were used as sieves to separate the curds from the whey, which is a the crucial whey. step in whey, whey. Uh, to separate the curds from the whey, a crucial step in cheese making, which is used in fresh and aged cheeses alike. The researchers used carbon dating techniques to examine the the objects from two village sites. While previous studies have identified ancient milk fats and tools such as cheese graters and strainers, this is the first direct evidence of milk fermentation in the Neolithic era. That's really neat, right? So, like, but apart from that, who cares? Like, yeah, yeah. cheese. Cheese is great. Of course, people had cheese. Okay, so here's why we care. I'm particularly pleased that I didn't have to read another word scramble of a paragraph from analytical <laughs> chemistry. One was enough, huh? Yep. Tell me tell me what they said in PLOS One. Okay. So this is why this is actually much more exciting than just, oh, geez. So this is from the article's abstract. <laughs> Which, quote, let, make no mistake, oh, I feel no. that way anytime I'm always I excited cheese. to find cheese. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But this is implication cheese. Okay, here we go. So, quote... <laughs> The evidence for fermented dairy products by 5200 BCE indicates a larger proportion of the population was able to consume dairy products and benefit from their significant nutritional advantages. We suggest that milk and cheese production among Europe's early farmers reduced infant mortality and helped stimulate demographic shifts that propelled farming communities to expand to uh, to northern latitudes. Okay, so here's what that means. Wait, I have a question, though, about specifically this. So Mm -hmm. the evidence for fermented dairy products by 5200 BCE indicates a larger proportion of the population was able to consume dairy products. Mm -hmm. How do you know there was a larger proportion? Larger than now or just larger than none? No, larger than before. Yeah, larger than none. Exactly. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Yeah, it's a weird sentence. Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay, so here's, here's why this is cool. Humans, like all other mammals, produce milk for their young. And, like other mammals, at a certain age, human babies are meant to be weaned from milk, meaning that they move on to other foods and don't drink milk anymore. Except that large portions of the human population today do drink milk and eat cheese and ice cream. We're the only species that continues to consume milk after the weaning age. But, moreover, and probably kind of weirdly if you think about it, it's the milk of other species, 
very weirdly and yeah, i have it, thought about it yes it, so it's the milk of other species except for that one time that there was an ice cream shop in the uk that made breast milk ice cream um and just huh. as a side note i knew i knew about it it was one of my half remembered facts but then i actually went back and and looked it up again and that shop apparently screened all the milk from its donors to make that breast milk ice cream and so they could claim that it was safe but in the u.s the fda is kind of leery about that kind of thing justly because milk is a body fluid and can carry pathogens so if you're really curious and you're wondering about best practices for handling human breast milk you can check out the human milk banking association which is at www.hmbana.org. So back to the milk of other mammals. Um, <laughs> this chapter from your... From, from my The milk of book. other mammals. <laughs> a memoir. Okay. The development of pastoralism as a lifestyle sometime between 11,000 and 8,000 years ago resulted in some human populations being around milk-producing animals all the time. And when that animal milk was part of the human diet, the body adapted. So lactase is an enzyme in the human digestive system. Its only job is to digest lactose, a sugar found in milk. And after a certain age in most mammals, the body stops producing lactase because, like I mentioned earlier, the animal isn't drinking milk anymore, or at least it's not supposed to be. So in populations with historically pastoralist pasts, uh, <laughs> people keep producing lactase into adulthood. And so... These populations can usually enjoy milk products without the, the nausea, bloating, discomfort, and fun gassiness that some of the rest of us experience. So, and then the rest of the rest of us get to experience secondhand. Mm, sorry. <laughs> so, for example, descendants of populations in Eastern Asia who were not pastoralists typically experience more lactose intolerance than, say, Northern Europeans who did rely on livestock and had milk in their diet. And this is why you find 300 kinds of cheese in France and not in Japan. So 7,000 years in Croatia, we have concrete evidence, or rather terracotta evidence, that milk products were part of the diet. And so that extra calorie and fat-rich resource might have made a big change in the survival rate of infants who often died within the first couple of years without adequate nutrition. And so if the infants were staying alive, that would mean a population increase. And with the population increases, more groups of people tend to move outwards, looking for their own territory and taking their milk-drinking ways with them. So that's yeah. why that find from Croatia is super cool, because it tells us something about how the population back at, in, that, in that place and at that time might have been undergoing some really significant shifts. Just from awesome. your residues. Yeah. Yeah. So thus ends the wine and cheese course. Um, and we hope you've enjoyed our festive audio snack. Um, and speaking of people moving outward and <laughs> population booms, uh, we'll be back next week with a multi-episode series. So we're going to, yeah, yeah, we're going to, we're going to start off the new year by looking back to our own beginnings. We're going to talk about human origins. Yay. It's going to be a crash course in human evolution. Until then. You can find us, as always, on SoundCloud, the Apple Podcast app, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you, while you're there getting your podcasts, if you could just drop us a quick review, uh, that would be so very appreciated. It really helps us out. Yeah. Throw us a few stars. Mm -hmm. Follow us. Subscribe. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to find other places to follow us, you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. Um, we are starting to share more and more stories that are either too cool to include, well, to, to wait until our old news episode or we just uh, like the overflow. So mm -hmm. if you want to learn not only about what we're doing here at The Dirt, but what other people are doing in the world of archaeology. Yeah, join the Facebook page. It's a lot of fun. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can see all that all smushed together at thedirtpod.com. And if you want to email us with episode ideas or questions or thoughts of your own about your favorite wines and cheeses, you can do that at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to keep the episodes flowing like wine, you can support us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or just a single-time donor. Either way, we'd be extremely grateful. And you can do that at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Have a great, have a great New Year's Eve. Stay yeah. safe out there. Yes, yeah, stay safe and warm. Make good choices. And, or stay safe and cool if you are listening to us from the Southern Hemisphere. 
Which True. some of you are. Hello. Happy S- summer solstice. Sorry we've been talking about snur so much. Yeah. Stay safe and maintain a steady bodily temperature. How's that? Yeah. Great. Thanks for listening. We love you. Bye. Bye.